0: good evening ladies and gentlemen identity part nine uh, abstraction sort of it's basically a continuation of uh, the last conversation but I want to focus on abstraction which is sort of an abstract concept so it becomes a bit paradoxical but that's what I want to explore and how, how our world being inundated with abstraction sort of crushes us um, for trying to form a sense of belonging worth and identity that's at the core of uh, human well-being. Um, before I do that, I've got to remember, oh, almost forgot, again, the classes. Um, the There's one space left in June, and three spaces left, I believe, in the early September class. The later September class is sold out. So one in June, two or three in September, the early September. So thanks to everybody who signed up, and thanks to everybody who listens, by the way. I really do appreciate it. It is encouraging. I like the comments, even the comments... They disagree with me. That's great too. So uh, thank you very much. Appreciate it. And um, abstraction. Here we go. So why is abstraction a problem, and and what does it mean for us? And how do we know that we're sort of inundated by it? Well, I think it's pretty obvious we're inundated by it. But let's think of what this means. So there's a philosopher Singer, who has this sort of you know moderately famous within the philosophical world idea, and he calls it the story of the child and the pond, and it goes like this and he says, okay, look, here's what's going on. You're walking through a park, and you've been through the park a lot of times, so you know the water in the pond is, don't say, waist deep. And um, usually the park is filled with people, but today there's no one really around. And you look in the pond, and you see this young child is drowning. And you're like, oh, no, there's a child drowning in the pond. <clears throat> but that morning you happen to wear your nicest shoes and your nice pants, and you're going to a meeting or something, and you're like, oh, you know, but you're going to save the child, right? Almost certainly you're going to say there's no risk to me. I can just, you know, wade into the pond, save the child. Everything will be great. I need to take responsibility and just do this. And I'm really not going to worry about the pants and the shoes. I'm not going to say probably that, oh, um, because of my nice shoes and my nice pants, I didn't put the child in the pond. So it's not my responsibility. I really have nothing to do with the child. And I don't want to waste the money that I spent on my shoes and my pants, so I'll just let them drown because it has nothing to do with me. Now, the singer, and then singer goes on to say, well, therefore, you know, you see that we well, certainly, almost everybody's going to jump in the pond and save the child. By the way, statistically, this is true. This notion that, that bystanders don't help people has been proven um, uh, demonstrably false. Like 90-some percent of the very high 90s percent of the time, People do crazy stuff to help people that they think are, are in trouble. So humans humans are a lot nicer than we're often given credit for. So, um, so certainly almost everybody, like 97% of people or something above that, would jump in and save the child. And he says, ah, but here's the thing. He says, so why won't we take the same money that we're just going to spend on the pants and the shoes and send that off to child aid organizations to help children in poverty and need around the world he says this is sort of you know why don't we do this we need to do this right it's the same idea um, and it really doesn't make a difference that the child's in front of us or not now of course because it's abstraction you can see the problems are going to come here but i would like to point out that this analogy or a little story parable perhaps is the best word there, is based on, I would assume based on, I don't, I don't know that he knowingly did this, but anyway, there's a much better version of this in minchus and this is the story of the child at a well, and it says a stranger is walking through a town, doesn't know anybody, doesn't have anything to gain whatsoever, but he sees a child about to fall into a well, and will just spontaneously grab the child and save it, no questions asked, and the point that minchus makes is that People are fundamentally uh, a good this is, this is human nature most people almost everybody is fundamentally good and if you nurture the goodness in them they will do good things and that's this is by the way one of the core concepts of Confucianism which is why it has a different approach to identity than the Western tradition which is very much um, suspicious of people or think we're all innately sinners and so on. So it's a, a very different approach to a concept of, of people at, at, at core. And like I mentioned, we will get around to discussing some of those differences later. So, but Mencius knows n- never goes on to this next level. He never says, Oh, would you send money to save children from wells from other towns? It doesn't, he just says you, you would see it, you would do it. It's innate in us to do a helpful thing for a child. And Singer's argument is like yeah that should extend reasonably that should extend to children in other places Um, the problem with this is simply everything everything about this is wrong the are again go back to what we've been talking about our physical reality what is faced with us what we're deal with is concrete when you're facing a child in a pond We're really very much better at dealing with that because that is our evolutionary and cultural history for a very, very long time. We were almost always immersed in concrete situations. In fact, for most of human history and prehistory, we would have known who the child was. We wouldn't be saving our strange child. We'd be saving an actual child that we knew because we never saw strangers or rarely saw strangers it would be weird to see a stranger and so not only would we save the child we would be saving sarah's child we would know who that child was we'd know how they related to us not that it was change our behavior because we'd probably uh, save a, a drowning strange child just as quickly however we just wouldn't encounter it and so for again almost the entirety of our evolution both culturally and then before that as, as our primate ancestors we dealt with a world that was very concrete uh, physically palpable appealing directly to our senses about which we had an exceptionally visceral grasp and then suddenly we're thrown in the modern world and again in evolutionary and cultural terms very suddenly in which well we don't know how to respond to a child who's drowning someplace else in the world cuz cuz all the, the the questions just stack up here in fact i think it's incredibly disingenuous to suggest that it, that that the analogy applies because the first question of course is well who should i send the money to uh, no, i'm not suggesting that any aid organization has ever misspent money in the history of mankind but yeah you know it's uh, <laughs> it's tricky what, what what's the best way to help children right how how should we spend the money so for you know lots of child poverty is caused by war so perhaps we should take our money arm some factions and send another kill the people who are creating problems for the children is that what we should do with our money because it would probably be effective if we had enough money we could just you know kill the problem people and sort of help save the children but it's like no we don't want to do that right that's no good The UN does this sort of thing, and it turns out it's really, really unbelievably complicated to try and solve large-scale social issues outside. I mean, it's hard enough to deal with stuff in your own country, much less in other countries about which you know nothing, you know their histories. And so instead, you have to trust an intermediary whom you don't really know. You might know something about them, you do your research, but you don't know them viscerally again. So again, you have this stranger problem. They seem like nice people. They seem like they aren't going to embezzle the money and buy a jet or go to Vegas with some you know, hookers and blow and have a nice time with it. But no, they're probably going to try and help. But even if they try and help, we know that often even very well-intentioned attempts to help relieve poverty or deal with Uh, Issues of inequality run into trouble that sometimes they don't help sometimes they exacerbate situations I mean, this is the history of, you know, international relations and aid and all these struggles to try and do good that sometimes uh, not invariably, but sometimes Turn out not good at all. And so there's all these layers of doubt that gets sown between an individual and abstract 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 but we tend to pretend, and this is where we're, we're getting back to our subject of identity, we tend to pretend like these abstractions don't really matter. They're not that different. They're just, you know, we have the concept, we have the idea. We, you know, no, Th- the difference between the visceral, what appeals to your senses, and some concept that somewhere someplace in a country I don't know, there are people I don't know who are going to help children I don't know in a way I don't understand. right? the worlds apart I see child I see pond I know pond I get child not confusing not hard not not troubling the other is trouble there's problems there's there's psychic tension at every level because it's not visceral that's exactly the problem the the whole point of his story actually highlights the problem it doesn't explain it or give some sort of analogy of what's gonna happen or how we should behave And that is their central issue. We really do not, I think, have come to terms in any way with the dangers of abstraction, which is weird for someone who spends a lot of their life reading books and talking about philosophy, but it really is a, a morass, a danger in abstractions. Um, and we're we're immersed in them. So first, I want to make a distinction. And by the way, this is of course arguable. I could argue. You no, know, this is simply part of this. Is just oh, phenomenology. I'm just going to knock off the entire field of phenomenology in just a few sentences. So you know, don't worry about that. But I think a helpful way to think of it is, again, appeals directly to your senses. And again, we don't have five senses. By the way, we have lots of senses. I, I, no one can exactly agree on how many but you sometimes you feel hungry that's a sense you can feel hot and cold those are senses uh, we have a sense of our location in three-dimensional space by the way this is why um, our primate ancestors chimpanzees lots of them patrolled territory and you have to have a notion again which we mentioned in an earlier lecture you have to have a sense of space in your mind and then where you are in that space but it's the in your mind that's really imp- important because as you go through for instance your house or your apartment you know where everything is if you've been there for a while you know you learn the pattern but of course if you move a chair the next day what do you do you kick the chair with your foot because you've disrupted that right now now you go oh that's right I have got to relearn that pattern I've got to get my mental map of my space in line with my physical actual space and so I'm not saying it's just the immediate concrete, but it is this strongly reinforced, sensible world which you can interact with directly and whose patterns you have built familiarity with. If you're not familiar with something, then it really isn't that concrete to your senses. So it, you know, it's just, there's layers to this. Again, it's gross oversimplification, but this notion of being able to encounter things and say, okay, my senses feel it, this is visceral this i know this has a certain concrete element to it so the opposite of that is the abstraction those things that impel in with increasingly remoteness only to intellectual concepts to mental constructs and that's we're just so inundated with us that we forget that there is even a distinction uh, sometimes like this is what singers problem is as if this is the same it's not the same in any way the visceral the real really does matter um, and where do we see this well you know language let's take a moment and talk about language language is an abstraction it's both amazing and wonderful and crazy and completely misleading language often misleads as much as it helps um, so one way to ponder this Again, thinking about our evolutionary process and our cultural processes. When we don't see a lot of strangers and we don't travel and things don't change, let's say we have a word for something, you know, basic, bread. Maybe we're in a culture that eats bread. Or if you're in China, you have a word for rice, right? Or if you have a word for sorghum, they grew a lot of sorghum. Um, You know, you have these sorts of concepts. Once you know the word rice and you've eaten rice, you know what something, when somebody says rice, you know what they mean. the the opportunities for confusion are very low because we both can point to the same thing. Like I eat rice, you eat rice. We've eaten rice every day together. That word means something to us and it means something very concrete. So even if we're out walking someplace where there is no rice, you know, we're on the hillside gathering herbs or looking for the uh, Zen master who's always disappeared into the fog or the Taoist monk who's out there someplace. Um, we can say, wow, I'm hungry, I would really like some rice. And so even though there's no rice around, we know what this means because we both have this experience. So it's, it's it's so that language can work that way. But of course we've left that far in the dust. Uh, much of what we talk about, much of the way we use language, is abstractions relating to abstractions relating to abstractions. Now part of this is the beauty of the human mind and the ability to create. But it baffles us because we start saying things like, oh, rescue kid pond, drowning child pond. Probably we all know what a pond is. We all know what children are. We know what drowning is, unless we're from a desert culture. We never encounter that. But most people will will be good. We have those words. We know what they mean. Reducing poverty. Yeah. See, see how that's very different? We have no visceral sense. We don't know what poverty actually means. And again, don't believe me. Uh, just talk to the people of the Bureau of Labor Statistics. They have no idea how to define poverty. And they just say it very straightforwardly. And they say, we've got all these different measures, and we don't know if any of them are any good. And the people in economics and social sciences debate about this endlessly because it's tricky. Because what? You know, because we know that people suffer from lack and want, and that's bad. So it's okay with that. Uh, but but what you know? Ah, it's such a complex world. How do you get your fingers around what poverty means, and what does it mean to, of course, reduce it? When when when? Yeah. See you see how tricky this is. Because what's less is, is poverty a countable thing? So you can have seventy-five percent less, or is it a phase change? Right? Is it a state? Right, where you go from liquid water to steam, or from liquid water to ice? You've actually changed state. You don't get less water. You don't reduce water. You change its state. And so, is, is it even correct to say reduce poverty? Or shouldn't we really say um, take somebody, and which we do say actually, take them out of poverty, like change their phase? And or are we taking someone's poverty and declining it by fifteen percent? See, it's we, we, ah, we don't know. So reducing poverty sounds good, except for we don't know what re- what we're reducing, and it's not clear what poverty is. Those two things are abstract. Child drowning, not abstract. We have we can we can viscerally feel this. People who are lacking certain things they know this they aren't confused it's not confusing to them often right they've got this track down and so you can say oh we don't want to reduce poverty we want to give that person or give that person the opportunity to have water right they don't have fresh water that's bad let's get them water it's very concrete so we know water like understand let's give them water or, or provide them water at least that's clearer than reduce poverty so, you know, those levels of abstraction, of course, that's just the beginning. You know, the language just goes on and on. We use, we use language so loosely and we rely on the abstraction to create confusion rather than create meaning and to help. So another example I like to use, I think I've used before in my uh, lecture on health, is nobody wants insurance. We do not want insurance. We don't care about insurance. What we want is for if I break my arm, I can go to the hospital, get it fixed, miracles of modern medicine, and not go bankrupt. That's what I want. And people go, oh, yeah, we call that insurance. Ah, of course, we know this is not true. If you have insurance, but you have the wrong kind of insurance, and you go to the wrong hospital, then instead of the insurance company paying for it or paying for much of it, they'll say, oh, well, you're out of our network or something, and so we'll only pay 20% instead of 70 you know, all these. So it turns out that you can have insurance, The sort of abstract conceptual legal construct, but you don't get what you actually want, which is, you know, I've got a growth. I need to have it removed. Well, sorry, we don't do that. We don't cover that. You got the wrong hospital. You have the wrong doctor. You have the wrong kind of illness, which I always love. You've got, that's a, that's the kind of illness we don't like. So we're not going to, you know, cover that or whatever. So. but again everyone's like oh well we want insurance people want insurance it's like no we don't people don't want insurance in fact we really don't want insurance because it's complicated and confusing and involves paperwork and nobody wants that who wants that i don't want that um what we want is to just walk in the hospital and be better and then walk out right this is the ideal situation tricky i'm not saying this is a simple fix i'm just saying we get confused by the concept of insurance which we go oh well if I have insurance then all these problems go away versus the actual reality of insurance which we all know particularly in the United States by the way if you're in other countries where you've sort of done a better job of sorting this, good on you in the United States we're not making much headway on this one um, you know it's just this huge morass who didn't pay when do they pay what date did you come yeah see that's not what we want we want to go to the hospital and be better Not confusing, very visceral, very concrete, very easy to understand. Insurance, but what do we talk about? What's the political discourse? What's the cultural discourse? Oh, insurance, as if insurance will solve the problem. It does not solve the problem. In fact, it may make the problem much worse. And yet, here we are. So we're in these endless cycles where we play word games because we don't think in concrete, visceral applications. If you, if you can get in the habit of that, then it's often very helpful to clarify what's going on around you. Because you realize, oh, word game, word game, word game. We're not talking about anything. We're just we're, we're putting an abstraction next to an abstraction and say, look at these two abstractions. Um, okay, well, it can be interesting. And again, you know, I don't want to criticize love of language, love language. I don't want to criticize, you know, higher order thinking, one of humanity's great achievements. But in a world where so much of our visceral experience has been denatured, been taken from us, and replaced by all of these abstractions, oh, phew, now it becomes increasingly problematic and unnerving. We'll talk about that. Uh, another big abstraction, of course, <clears throat> the, the perhaps the most popular abstraction besides language, would be money. We forget that... Um, Money is an abstraction. This is back to Singer's example. It's really the perfect negative example because ruining your shoes and pants is very concrete. <clears throat> doesn't bother us. We're going to jump in that pond to save the kid. If I got new high heel shoes or leather lovers, a new dress, or whatever, who, who, we're not going to think about that. And again, studies show this is true. We don't. We just jump in and save people. We're, we're good like that. But money is not the same as saving a drowning child. Like the, the notion that you can substitute $600 or some whatever your shoes are worth and send that off in the mail, and that's the same as rescuing a child, it's nothing, it has no, it, like zero correlation. What I've done is I've started the chain of abstraction. Oh, I have this abstraction, money, which could or could not do something, that I'm not going to send to an abstraction, some organization that's going to address an abstraction, poverty, in a country that I'm not familiar with, maybe. They're going to go someplace I've never been. I don't know anybody there. So I have an abstract concept of a geographic location filled with abstract people who are not abstract to them, of course, but they're abstract to us. We don't know them. I'm abstract to everybody else, right? You know, it's just this, we can only know a very small number of people again. And so we live in this world of course money very popular all over the place and we continually forget that money is this just crazy abstraction I was talking to one of my friends and he said yeah people always act as if whatever your currency is will be around for, forever even though we know factually that is will never happen the dollars gonna go away uh, you know the German mark went away then you get the euro the euro will go away at some point like the history of the world is littered with dead currency. The idea of money tends to stay popular, but the money itself, uh, it just comes and goes, right? It just appears, circulates for a while, then it vanishes, doesn't circulate anymore for all, I mean, there's any number of reasons. But we treat it as if this is this permanent, forever, never going to go away, absolute perfect asset that is real. Um, now, it functions, it does stuff, but it is an abstraction. It's, it's a weird abstraction. And so we get attached to it because we forget that it's an abstraction rather than something concrete. And they always say, oh, you know, if if you were hungry, if you're starving to death, a, a sandwich that you would have paid $5 for now is probably worth $5,000 or $5 million. So you'll give all your money not to starve to death for that food. The food becomes very much more concrete, right? Because we need that to live. But the value of the money becomes hugely variable because it's theoretically, at some point, attached back to the real world, of course, so tangentially as to be almost ridiculous, which is kind of what we're experiencing in the world today because of this huge international economic disruption of the pandemic with billions of people having their lives disoriented, their work habits fractured, all and somehow like the world economy seems to just roll along as if it's not connected to anything, and then something connects and it blows up. Suez Canal is a perfect example economic world trade uh, global shipping all sounds very abstract and it is and it's almost always talked in really abstract terms but it turns out that somewhere an actual concrete ship is going through an actual canal and if that canal gets blocked ooh, all of our smooth functioning just went right down the the tubes right and so all of a sudden we're, all, the entire global shipping system gets jammed up because hey it's got to go through a canal. Now we can't go through the canal. So wah, trouble, trouble, because the world is real at some point, right? There's these concrete elements to it that we forget about that we, because we're in love with abstraction. And again, money, just the the, the craziest one. Um, and a third one, of course, we can go on and on. There's so many of them that I think now is, uh, uh, will articulate. Hopefully, if I can articulate it, I think it's a clear example that I'll probably mess up. But if I can articulate it clearly is this concept of fame, which has become increasingly popular in the modern world. And it's, everybody's like, oh, why is fame all of a sudden a thing? Why is it, you know, we used to be sort of lean more towards privacy, and now all of a sudden we're leaning more towards uh, a fame culture, a culture that seeks notoriety and uh, public uh, recognition. And But notice fame, again, is an abstraction. I mean, it has real-world elements to it, but it's it's the notion of going, oh, Again, for my identity, I need people to feed back to me a sense that I exist and I belong and I'm important and that they know who I am. I mentioned this last time. Loneliness is, is very much more, it's much worse for your health than smoking and drinking heavily. Not just a little bit, but like a lot. So it's like, wow, you know, that's, that's impressive. So one response to this when you're surrounded by strangers Who Again, these are not people you're surrounded by when you don't know them. They're there, they're real, they're visceral, but you have to interact with them in abstraction, which is weird and disorienting in itself because you can't actually treat them as people because usually there's too many of them and you don't know any of them. What this means is you're also not getting the feedback that you need to feel good about yourself. So a perfectly reasonable... Attempt to address this problem of the modern world is to say, oh, I want people to recognize me I want to be places and I want to be seen as someone who is known and recognized and these Images of, of the famous people right? You know the, the, the cameras flash and they smile that you see repeated over and over and over and over again is so alluring because if you're disoriented If you do not feel like you're getting the feedback that allows you to feel like you exist, then like, oh, look, that person is getting the feedback. They're getting positive reinforcement for their existence. They're getting their identity. Their self is being acknowledged. The trap here, of course, which is what everybody who becomes famous, not everybody, but many people who have become famous and then discovered uh, this doesn't function that well because this is abstract knowing they don't really know you and then people who become famous talk about this that there's this increasing gap between like oh well you know some very small aspect of me but you think that's all of me and so actually i feel like i'm being alienated even from what was perhaps part of me and then if you become reliant on that then you need strangers abstraction again this distance they aren't personal with you to continually provide you feedback that actually increases your alienation. And so, you know, basically all, you know, it's a consistent drumbeat of talking about how bad social media is for people, causes all kinds of stress and anxiety and, you know, a lot of, uh, I, I don't know, I've not seen any convincing numbers that that more people commit suicide because of this, but there is there, there the evidence is growing this may be the case but let's hold off on figuring out if that, that's true. These things take a while to disambiguate from all of the craziness of our world. But it may, would make sense if this does become true because on one hand, it can give you that sense of communication, that sense of participating in a community. On the other hand, it's still, very very abstract and remote and if it doesn't give you a sense of reality if it doesn't give you that visceral vicarious sense in your body that oh this works then at some point it becomes it's self-alienating right it becomes it makes the, the process or the problem of feeling isolated and alone even worse because now you're getting Feedback that is not helping you but actively harming you and this is why something like fame this abstract people oh I want to be famous and it's like why I want people to know me but you want people you don't know to know you which is weird why would you want people you don't know to know you right why is that functional it's like well in a world with a lot of people how do you meet new people how do you experience new ideas so it's, again it's not crazy you can see where as it gets extended, it's like, oh, but if I have to, if I, if I don't have anything else, then I have to have strangers continually reinforce a sense of who I am. And so now am I playing to the strangers or am I playing to myself? And so that, you know, those struggles. And so it, it basically says, here's a problem to help me solve Uh, identity issues and what it does is it sort of amplifies them and puts a magnifier on them and says well is this really your identity which is not helpful if you're having identity issues right you can see this and so as we wade through this ocean of abstraction I mean just completely weighing us down then you want to think about the reverse right is to say how do I de-abstract my life uh, if you're interested in this kind of thing That's an unbelievably, I would argue, important question in the modern world. What can I make, what can I do that makes me feel less abstract? How can I limit or increase or whatever uh, ways to increase my visceral, sensual engagement with the world? And, you know... There's, there's lots of ways to ponder this and approach this, and I'll leave it up to you, but it's, it's not that difficult to think about, except for it sounds so silly that you go, okay, uh, what do I do that engages my visceral senses? The more you do that, the more you'll feel engaged, and the more you'll feel you because you're actually feeling you. And This is not really a big psychological breakthrough or anything. It's like, look, we're physical beings. And are living in a society that tries to convince us that our brains, that we're brains in jars. We're not brains in jars. We're, we're monkeys who have the capacity to do some abstract thinking, which is great and wonderful and amazing. But let's not get too confused about the fact that we're still primates. We're, we're sort of, I can never decide if we're primates gone big time or primates gone big time wrong. <laughs> it's, I'm always debating that. Which way did we go? But we're just sort of primates with some uh, pretty impressive abilities to to think that we just won't ever use so how can i increase this so if you think of anything that we think we might want and go okay i want um i'm trying to think what's a a good right oh health right we want health we want to be healthy i mean yes and yes pro pro health let's do that all right what does that mean concretely what how can i make that visceral what health means okay and again of course health is sort of an abstract concept I want to feel good what makes me feel good right does fresh air and probably exercise a little bit of some kind walking strolling about whatever you enjoy doing what kind of physical activities do you enjoy do those now notice if you're doing physical activities you enjoy well you're you're experiencing joy which is plenty good and in itself And uh, you're probably making yourself feel better, which is another plenty good end in itself. And it's visceral because you're actually using your body, however that is. Dancing, basketball, tennis, who cares? You know, walking about, strolling about aimlessly. It's all fine. It's all equally good if it brings you joy and makes you feel more grounded and, and, and viscerally attached to the world unfortunately what we tend to do is the reverse which is we tend to go okay i need a plan ah oh, see ah, oh, god damn it. it just i just just the whole notion just makes my skin crawl because like okay now the plan is what becomes important not again not opposed to planning but notice the plan is that first small level of abstraction and then people go oh now I want the best possible plan, right? If I, you know, I'm not, I don't want just a, you know, plan to say, oh, I should walk a little more I'll schedule some time to walk about. Okay, great. Wonderful. We have the quote unquote plan. No, 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 no. I need a maximizing plan. And so all of a sudden people become obsessed with like these incredibly complex, you know, plans to make. And it's like, yeah, see, so you, what you're loving is this abstract concept that if I fulfill all of these time schedules and goals and number of push-ups and miles run or whatever, stretches, and meditation, uh, then I'll be someplace. And it's like, you no, know, then you'll be fulfilling this thing that you dreamed up that is, in fact, an abstraction. I am saying it's a terrible idea, but you just don't, again, it's so easy to get confused between what's actually doing, happening, giving you joy, making you feel good, and a schedule. So people will schedule these, oh, i want to do all this workout. And then when they miss a workout, they feel bad and so the abstract concept of a plan which they are now meeting has subverted the entire process because now they feel bad about themselves because when the whole point was to make them feel good and so the abstraction itself often becomes the barrier to the concrete visceral good and we do and then you know we do this in education you know when people are uh students aren't making progress towards their degree they're like oh they're not they're doing poorly it's like Really? It's like like speed is the thing. You know, how fast you get your education is the most important aspect, apparently. Uh no, of course not. That's that's absurd. Like A it assumes that there's a day you finish being educated, which I hope is not true. And B that that's like, oh I you know, sometimes you go, well, I'll just take a break, take a quarter off, take a semester off, take a year off, take five years off. Who the hell cares? Right? And then come back and make some more quote unquote progress towards your degree. Yeah, but no, we the plan, um, the ideals, the abstractions continuously overwhelm us, and so again, uh, constantly ask yourself, or or at least constantly that's probably too much, too strong, but start looking for ways or opportunities or moments where you go, oh, am I confusing? the abstract concepts like you know say money or a concept from language for the visceral thing itself and the best way to test this is you know what is the visceral element what part of this can I pick up What part of this can I throw a rock at what part of this can I hug or eat or and then work from there the more you work from there I think the better off you tend to be and part of this if if, if you've ever done hiking or gone in the woods, one of the things I think makes the experience often quite powerful and moving for people is the woods are very concrete, but not human. They just don't care. It's not, they're not sending a lot of signals to us. So the built world, the, the world we inhabit most of the time, architecture. Billboards, media, digital media is all constructed towards our consumption. It's always telling us something, encouraging us something, discouraging us from something. It's filled with messages, subtle, unsubtle, um, and abs- often abstract concepts pouring in on us that we're con- we're just deciphering constantly. This is what we do, and again, not necessarily bad, but it just it's part of how we have to interact with a world that's so filled. With built environments that are products of human imagination, either amazing or terrible. And we code and decode and code and decode, just always, always, always working on this subconsciously and consciously. And then we wander off into an environment that really doesn't have any messages for us doesn't care, totally indifferent to us. I mean, maybe there's a trail that sends a message. Maybe someone's built a bridge that's helpful that gives us a little knowledge. But basically, the rocks don't care. The trees don't care. The river doesn't care. The clouds don't care. They're indifferent to us. So they're visceral and real, and they don't carry nearly the level of code. Now, we bring code to them. Oh, trees are beautiful. We love them. You know, it's not that we don't arrive with narratives that we plant on them, but they tend not to send that much back to you. And so I think part of the feeling that we often get when we're out hiking about or wandering about in, in, in more natural environments is a sense of freedom of, of all of this slowly going away. Like, oh, yeah, there's there is nothing here for me. There's no message here for me. There's no like overwhelming human code. There's nothing to decipher or decode. Uh, until you get to Taoism, which then says, yeah, that's right, so get rid of all that human stuff and then learn to be a rock, right? And that's sort of that next level. And again, why the Chinese tradition is very different, which we'll, which we'll discuss also the Indian tradition. But those moments when we can release ourselves from feeling the overwhelming sense of abstraction and disconnection by doing things that are palpable and physical and visceral, help ground our sense of ourselves because those senses are absolutely necessary to us 100% and again because I'm always obsessed with education one of the things we know all the studies show this convincingly is the more physical interaction you have with a, a concept the better you are able to learn it and remember it and utilize it so if you are so taking notes handwriting notes on paper is very much better for you than than like typing it on a computer or just trying to remember it and staring out the window, highlighting in books as you read, bending pages, all of that is very much more helpful for learning than reading stuff on a screen that doesn't give you that kind of visceral feedback. You can't feel the paper, you can't bend it, you don't you know you spill your coffee on the page. You remember this it, often subconsciously, but it helps. The materials stick in your mind. And so one of the things that's been happening as education has been increasingly digitalized is it's become more abstract and people struggle. It just makes it harder. It it doesn't help. It makes it worse. It makes it more difficult because you're losing the visceral feedback. You're losing the opportunities to go, oh, you know, I wrote that down. I remember that. That's right, because you wrote it down. That's what helps you remember it. You don't need to reread the notes. Maybe maybe rereading them helps you, but mostly just writing them down will help you the most. So if you if you learn languages, they say, make your own flashcards. You can buy big sets of flashcards, which is convenient. Notice again, you take money to buy the work that you should have done to help you learn the language without doing the work that would actually help you learn the language, right? So you've confused the money to helping you with what you theoretically are trying to accomplish learn a language see how quickly we go wrong again oh it's the flashcards that matter it turns out that making the flashcards is a big part of the flashcards because that writing them and then seeing them will help trigger your memory specifically seeing them in your handwriting because you'll remember that particular bizarre particularly with my handwriting which is horrible you'll see that oh I know that word because I remember writing, is very visually cueing to me because I wrote it. Somebody else probably couldn't read it. So, And you would do the same thing with your own handwriting. And so that process, the physical process, reinforces it, makes it visceral, makes it real. But of course, the best way to learn a language is go to a country and live there for a while. It takes about six months. I'm assuming you don't just speak English to everybody you'll be good you'll be fine you'll be able to order a cappuccino what else do you need to be able to do right you'll be able to get through your day you'll be picking it up and you'll learn it furiously why because you're it's everywhere it's visceral it's everyday life everything you do you need some of that language and boy you want it and so you get it it's, not, it's in no way confusing it's, it's just straightforward but the more abstract you make it, the more distant, the less visceral, sitting in a classroom with flashcards that somebody else created for you that you have no association with, that you flip through once or twice because you were like thinking there might be a test. Nah, this is not a good way to learn it because notice you're trying to take a test so that you can get a grade that you're moving on towards some other goal. So you have abstraction, 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 which is very different from like, man, I'm hungry. I want to find some good place to eat. Let me focus in on the 12 words I know and see if I can turn those into a nice sandwich because I'm hungry. That's a concrete, visceral goal. And when you solve it, you feel good. I have an accomplishment. Look, I got a sandwich. I didn't get a grade that may or may not reflect anything about the work I did. I got a sandwich that I can eat, or I got a cappuccino I can drink, or I was able to meet some people, and that's very exciting, or whatever that the visceral, the concrete matters. And so, looking for those opportunities, because again, so often in the modern world, we tend to shy away from that and we want to move towards, we tend to embrace the abstract, which we're already overwhelmed with, as a means of dealing with a problem that is created by the abstract. So it just sort of, again, it ramifies, it becomes increasingly bad for us. So I'll just exit. And by the way, and you can clearly see that the, the two are sort of, you know, linked. I kind of think of this as 8A and 8B. But the this this being growing leery of and, and looking for opportunities to avoid abstraction and to embrace the concrete is hugely or often not invariably of course but often hugely hugely clarifying it gives you a sense of like oh this is I know this not that's a true capital ontological sense of true but it's like oh I've, I've now I have this experience I've had this moment I've had this feeling I know how much it weighs I know what it tastes like now you know now you're there now you have that sense of feedback from the world and from yourself that allows you to feel more grounded and to begin to develop a stronger sense of identity. Thank you.